0: okay so imagine that you've done everything right you've received the proper training served an apprenticeship under your father worked hard to obtain the right equipment and have used it long enough to know its strengths and its weaknesses and you've done everything that can be done to maximize the strengths and minimize the weaknesses imagine that you've earned your reputation through hard work and honest dealing so that both your Partners and your competitors know you to be at the top of your game. You've paid your dues, in other words. And over the years, you've learned to take the good with the bad, the mediocre with the exceptional. You've developed the long view, the ability to see beyond today's success or failure, and to see your efforts and their rewards over the long run. You've learned to accept the bad days, trusting from experience that the next day will likely make up for it. You've stopped worrying about the temporary in favor of the longer term. So, you're out there all night, you and your comrades in boats, all night long you've been out there on the lake, listening to the murmurs of the water and the whispers of your boat mates. Now and again you hear some chatter from another boat off in the dark, it's a typical night. It also happens to be a bad night, at least in terms of production, not a fish to be found. Like they'd somehow spread the word from school to school, swim out a little farther, boys and girls, and watch those nets, they mean us no good. And with the whispers under the water spreading that message, the whispers above the water become more strained and irritable. But your voice calls for quiet, for calm. Remember, fellas, if tonight's a bad night, well, tomorrow night will likely be a good night. That's the way it goes, boys. That's the way it goes. The more experienced among your crew nods sagely at this council. And the younger ones keep their mouths shut, with silence being the better part of wisdom. Their skepticism does not concern you. They'll learn, the good ones anyway, the ones likely to take what they've learned and make a living from it. The others, well, the lake's better off without them. Let them go learn some other trade, some land trade. Let them go and uh, build things with their hands, leave the water for those of us who can see the whole horizon. And so the dawn comes and you tell your friends to call it a night, bring up the nets, let's head on in. You'll make whatever repairs are needed on shore before heading home for your bed. And that's where you are when the wise guy shows up. You're taking care of business, mending and cleaning your nets so that they'll be ready to go that evening, nothing special about him, clearly a landlubber. In fact, you recognize him. Of course you do. He's, he's the one that just dropped in on you some time ago, just walked right into your house and proceeded to heal your mother-in-law. You remember it well. The whole family was gathered around her, sick as she was with fever and acting all formal like people do around illness and talking about your mother-in-law as if she weren't really there and wondering quietly if she'd make it through this time. And then he busted in on you, the landlubber, a carpenter in fact, one of those hard-handed, restless folks who can't bear to see a piece of wood go unfiddled with, always needing to put things on top of other things. Um, no British accent, Kevin, but at least a British reference, Monty Python. Who's a... Anyways... <laughs> The ministry of putting things on top of other things. Anyways. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. Um, Just not as adventuresome as fishing for a living. Testing your body and your will night after night out there on the water. Where some say the ghosts walk. Skimming across the water like nobody's business. So the carpenter comes walking in unannounced and sees what's going on. And somebody asks him what he thinks should be done about your mother-in-law. And he offers no wisdom, no half-baked advice, no herbal remedies. Just speaks a word or two. And she gets up out of that bed and starts fixing a meal. So maybe more than a carpenter after all. You recognize him then, standing there beside the sea. And you tend to your business even while your mind works. What does he want here? What does he want with us? It surprises you to realize that you hope that he does want something from you. That he came to see you. That whatever thing is about to happen will include you. And sure enough, it does. He gets into one of your boats and asks you to push it out into the water. You find yourself doing exactly what he says. And then a most remarkable thing happens. He sits down in your boat and faces the shore and starts to talk to those gathered there. Later you tried to remember what he said, but try as you might, uh, when the storyteller asks you to explain what was said, you, you couldn't do it. He taught, you said. He, he taught them, he taught the crowds. But what happened next, that you remember. Very well. When he finishes speaking, he turns to you and says, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Now, being a professional catcher of fish, one with all the necessary credentials and experience, one who'd been named by the Sea of Galilee Fishers Association as the year's best fisherman, three years running, with the certificates to prove it, well, this suggestion from a rank amateur rubs you the wrong way. Even a child would know better than to tell a weary crew to go back out and start again in broad daylight. It was a bad night, sure, but you'll try again tonight, which, by the way, means it's important for you and your crew to get home and to rest. On any other day, with any other amateur making this useless suggestion, you'd either ignore him or give him a bit of language worthy of the occasion and his foolishness But today is not an ordinary day, though you couldn't have said why. And this amateur, he's not some ordinary wise guy, come by with his sarcastic suggestions to a bunch of tired and grumpy fishers. And so before you know it, and with only a hint of complaint, you say, Master, we've worked all night long but have caught nothing. (sighs) Yet, if you say so, I will let down the nets. While you have to work hard to avoid the looks given to you by your crew, what are you doing those looks say. Why would you listen to this carpenter? What does he know about fishing? Avoiding their eyes, you tell them to do what the stranger says, and they follow your orders. And the rest is as clear in your mind as five minutes ago. Your nets fill up to bursting. They fill up and become so heavy that you and your crew can't bring them in. They fill up and are so heavy that you have to enlist the help of your friends, James and John in the other boat. And both boats are soon filled with glittering, flopping life. So much life that your boats almost capsize. A bigger catch than you or anyone else had ever seen. An unreasonable catch. An amazing catch. A miraculous catch. Like every fish in the lake, that suddenly changed its mind and made a beeline for your nets. And then wrestled with each other just for the sheer pleasure of getting into your boats. Nothing like it ever seen under the Galilean sun. Takes your breath away. You stumble and you fall to your knees. What just happened? It's too much to bear. Like your boats, your heart, too, is overfull and threatening to go under. Your mind cannot comprehend. Who is this that the fish obey him? Who is this that you would obey him against every bit of wisdom and experience that you have? Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful human being. You don't know who he is, but you're guessing that he's not from around here. Not really. He makes you nervous. You feel unworthy somehow, an uncommon feeling for one so well-regarded among his peers. Whatever he did, however he did it, it, it doesn't compute. There's something special about him, something high, something so pure and potent that it's frightening. He needs to go away and leave you be so that you can forget about what just happened and move on with your life. But Jesus says to you, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. Now that do not afraid," "do not be afraid part, that feels pretty good about now. For some reason, as soon as Jesus says it, you really are not afraid anymore. Something else to ponder from this very strange day on the beach. He tells you not to be afraid, and boom, you're not afraid. That thing about catching human beings, though, well, that's something else again. You have no idea what that means. No idea what you're getting yourself into. But, but again, that weird calm settles over you. And you know that strange as this day has become. Well, there's plenty more strangeness to come. So you bring your boats in that magnificent catch ashore. And you and James and John finish off this strangest of all days by putting the proverbial cherry on top. You drop everything. And you follow Jesus. Just like that. You leave Everything and follow Jesus." Talk about your fish stories. This one's a doozy. Well, For the last number of weeks we've been calling out dreams from some of our members, specifically dreams for this congregation. And this morning we heard from Kevin Martin. We heard his dream for East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church over the next 10 years. And it's been a pleasure listening to sisters and brothers imagine our congregation somewhere off into the future. Imagining where God might be taking us and what life might be like for us there and then. And the preacher's task, as I've said before, is to seek some grounding for our imaginings in the scripture. It's hope that our dreams for East Chestnut Street are connected to the larger movement of God in the world, a movement we discern in part from our reading of the scripture. By doing so, we hope to align ourselves with God's purposes for and in the world, purposes which we proclaim end in, salvation and that alignment points us toward the future and gives us some room to imagine, to play, and to propose what that future may be. So, as I work with this story from Luke's Gospel this week, I did so with an eye for what the Spirit might be saying that would offer us some grounding for our dreams for this congregation. What do we see in this story which might point the way toward God's own future and the future of this congregation? Well, this is what I saw. Like Simon Peter and his comrades, we are, most of us, experts at being the church or at least experts at being this congregation in this place and at this time. That's not a prideful statement so much as it is a recognition that when a group of people have been together as often and as long as we have and have lived and worshiped and read and prayed and sung together as often as we have, we develop a pretty good sense of what this congregation is about. We know our context, as it were. And that context is East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church. And that knowledge is, I would argue, a good thing. It tells us that we are, in fact, a community. We are a community with a common purpose, which we carry out in a common space, and with commonly held agreements about how and when and what and why. We've got our own set of rules of conduct, some written down in our plan of organization and our mission statement, others unwritten, but just as powerful, more subtle rules which guide our life together, rules regarding how we do worship and how we baptize and how we share communion and how we pray. And again, I think this is all to the good. We have these rules, these agreements, for exactly the same reason that the ancient Hebrews had the law. These rules and agreements provide us with boundaries which are necessary for our orientation. They help us know who we are by defining what we do and how we do it. This is not to say that the rules and agreements are set in stone, cannot be changed whether intentionally or not, they have and they do and they will. Such changes are part of the life of a community and serve to assure us that ours is a living, breathing community and not just a collection of statues ready for the museum. And as we interact with each other around those agreements, it seems to me we gradually develop a larger sense of competence and expertise regarding our congregational life and mission. We become experts, as it were, on East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church, or at least the 2010 model. We know what makes it tick. We know what provokes its empathy and its irritation. We develop a pretty good idea for its capacity and can even predict with a fair degree of certainty which new ideas will fly and which will likely die on the vine. And again, I don't think this is a bad thing. It's what comes of being part of a particular clan for a good bit of time. Peter's expertise made it possible for him to know when it was best to go out into the water and when it was best to mend the nets and when it would be a profitable season and when it would be less so. His expertise made it possible for him to make a living at his vocation to plan ahead and prepare for good days and bad and to otherwise make his, life, make his way through life as a professional fisher. Our expertise at being East Chestnutters serves us equally well. It enables us to plan and prepare and organize our lives and our mission in ways which permit the greatest degree of faithfulness that we can manage with God's help. And it is expertise well earned, the fruit of our lives together. But, and you could see this coming a mile away, but there is a risk inherent in such expertise. A risk revealed by our gospel reading for today. That is, our expertise can make us cautious. Our expertise can limit our vision to what we know already and what we can predict from what we already know. It can cause us to confuse mission with what is safe or possible and can shrink our hope to what is predictable and reasonable. It can prevent us from seeing or hearing the odd, the strange, the inexpert, the screwball, and the prophetic And as our gospel reading makes clear, it is sometimes precisely in the odd, the strange, the inexpert, the screwball, and the prophetic that we hear the voice of Jesus. While we may be expert at imagining some variation on a theme we already know well, we can sometimes find it much harder to imagine something altogether different, altogether new, altogether strange and miraculous and wonderful. Our expertise encourages us to call it a day when the nets come up empty. And Jesus tells us to go try again in broad daylight when the fish are no longer biting and our boats almost capsized from the size of the catch. So my challenge to our community as we imagine ourselves into God's future is to not let our expertise, our our comfort, our sense of knowing exactly who we are and what we are about to keep us from hearing the voices from the margins, the inexpert, the young. At first hearing those voices may sound strange, they may sound foolish and unreasonable, They may sound unrealistic, perhaps even outrageous. Our immediate response may be to say, well, we already tried that in 1947 and it didn't work, or we've never done that before, or that'll never work. When you're here long enough, you'll understand why. Responses like that may seem sound and may well reflect our deep awareness of our congregation and its members, but they may also prevent us from dropping everything and following Jesus. Not to say that every strange challenge or call has to be heeded, but to say that we cannot afford to discount those calls automatically. Instead, we must take those voices seriously and engage in the kind of discernment that led Peter to go ahead and do something he knew was absolutely unreasonable and completely foolish and to do it simply because Jesus told him to. What those voices might say to us, where they may come from, where they may call us, who knows? But I do think our text insists that we not be so bound by our expertise at being East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church that we dismiss those voices without a hearing. Our text insists, I think, that we listen carefully for the voice of Jesus and the voices of the inexpert, the marginalized, the young, the new, the prophetic. I see one other thing in our gospel story which might speak into our dreaming, and this one is, I confess, a stretch based on an inference, and influence by what my own heart is telling me. So, feel free to blame, blame this one on me and leave dear brother Luke out of it. But I wonder what it was that caused three professional fishers on the day of their biggest, most history-making catch to suddenly drop everything in order to follow after Jesus. What possessed them to do something so foolish, so unreasonable? People in first century Palestine were no more likely than we would be to just up and walk away from everything that they knew and loved, everything they depended upon, and everyone who depended upon them. First century Jewish men were no more adventurous or foolhardy than we are. So if that's true, what possessed them to turn their backs on all they held dear and follow after some guy they'd only just met? All right, he proved himself to be a pretty unusual guy with some pretty spectacular abilities. But, I mean, why not turn the whole thing around and try to convince Jesus to stick with them and make a mint predicting where to drop their nets? Why leave behind everything and follow him? Well, there's the whole miracle business, right? I mean, for Peter at least, this was the second in a row. Both times that he'd been around Jesus, something amazing had happened. All right, so maybe they dropped everything and followed him because he could do cool things. But, I mean, really, how likely is that? Maybe they dropped everything because he was such a great preacher. Really? All right, well, maybe there were groupies in first century Palestine, pre-modern camp followers, ancient deadheads who simply gave themselves over to following the one who made them happy. But even if that were the case, would it survive that first false note? the first wave of homesickness, the first doubt. Well, here's what I suspect. Here's what I imagine. And I'll be honest with you again and admit that it's a suspicion based on something that is stirring within me as much as it is anything I can deduce from the Gospel story. As some of you know, um, week before last, I attended the annual Pastors Week at Associated Mennonite Biblical Seminary, Pastor Sue's beloved alma mater and the theme for the conference was um, reading the Bible confessionally and was led by uh, the uh, New Testament scholar, Mary Schertz, who, who teaches at AMBS. In Monday evening's opening service, Mary spoke to us about the theme for the week and how we would be working at it in the coming days. And in the course of doing so, Mary mentioned a conversation that she'd had with a visiting Pentecostal professor who had spoken at AMBS sometime before. And this Pentecostal professor had told her Mennonite sisters and brothers that we were very good at orthodoxy. We were good at practicing and proclaiming solid biblical thinking, right thinking. And we were good at orthopraxy. We were good at making that orthodox theology come to life, behaving in ways which matched our right thinking. And then the Pentecostal preacher gave them a third fancy word, to go with the other two, and that word, she said, was orthopathy, or right feeling. In other words, not only having Jesus inhabit our heads and enliven our hands, but also having Jesus inflame our hearts and our spirits. And she went on to say that the church needs Pentecostals like her to help it develop right feelings about what it means to follow Jesus. <laughs> Well, when Mary was telling us about that Pentecostal sister and her challenge to us thinking and doing Mennonites to become to consider becoming feeling people too, it suddenly occurred to me that Jesus is pretty much confined to my head and hopefully to my hands. But my heart? Hmm. Now that's not a comforting thought for a form of Pentecostal. But an understandable one perhaps. After all, when we leave one group for another, we can easily abandon the baby with the bathwater, or in this case, the heart for the sake of the head. And I've said before that I was never really cut out to be a Pentecostal. I am, shall we say, lacking in the ability to properly enthuse. (laughs) Still, Mary's words made me realize that while I'm grateful for the fact that Jesus does inhabit my mind and does motivate my hands, I'm aware of a lack of feeling for Jesus himself. I'm aware that whatever love I feel for him is in my head. And that realization makes me wonder. Could it be that what motivated Peter, James, and John, and Mary Magdalene, and Salome, and Phoebe, and Mary, and Martha, and Lazarus, could it be that what motivated them to drop everything and follow Jesus was something so simple, so basic, and so profound as love. Could that be it? Love. Love for Jesus. Love for a friend who just happens to be more than a friend. The kind of hands-on tangible material love for another human being that turned out in the end to really be a love for God. Was the act of following not only the right thing to do, but was it based on the right thing to feel? As I said, this is equal parts scripture And also what is stirring around inside of me the last week or so. But I do wonder. I mean, what would it be like if our imaginings, if our dreams were not only grounded in right belief and right practice, but also right feeling? What if our dreams for the future were not only grounded in a love for the community and a love for our neighbors, but also by a real passion for Jesus Christ? What might our future be if it were shaped not only by our best thinking and our best mission? but also by a profound and unapologetic love for Christ. What might happen if we Mennonites learn to express that love in ways which have integrity for us, but are also free of our typical self-consciousness and fear of being misunderstood or mistaken for evangelicals? Don't worry. I'm not calling for some new Pentecostal revival here at East Chestnut Street. I'm really not feeling in any way called to my roots or to imposing some form of expression on you or anybody else, whatever form our love for Jesus takes, it will need to be true to who we are, just as our right thinking and our right practice need to be true to who we are. I'm not calling for a Pentecostal revival at East Chestnut Street, but I am wondering. I'm wondering what it would look like for us to genuinely explore what it might mean for us to not only think and behave according to our love for Jesus, but also to become comfortable expressing that love in the way we talk about Christ and the way we talk about our experience with Jesus and the way we feel when we consider what it is like to follow after the one we say we love so if nothing else i offer this wondering to you my sisters and brothers as another thing to consider as together we imagine ourselves into god's future and the future of this particular part of the christ body of christ at the heart of today's gospel reading is the decision made by Peter, James, and John to drop everything and follow Jesus. That decision remains at the center of our faith and our life together. It's the basis for whatever dreaming we do together, whatever imagining we do regarding God's future and our place in it. Such a decision, I believe, requires that we keep our ears open, not only for the tried and true, but also for the new and the strange. It requires that we listen carefully for the voices for the voice of Jesus' calling. And I wonder, too, does that decision also call us to a new kind of love, a deeper, more expressive love for the one who calls us? Is it love that finally made Peter and James and John walk away from everything but Jesus? Is it love which motivates us and will motivate us to do the same thing? Well, having made that decision, Let's keep on following. Let's keep on dreaming. Let's keep on loving. All the way home. Amen.